Welcome back to the best damn fantasy podcast for your years. By now, you know all the players, the godfather, Paul Lundegaard, the chef, Jake B-Song. I am your host. Uh, you can find me at FF Terminator. But we are joined today by the editor-in-chief at numberfire.com and the author of the fantasy football strategy book, The Late Round Quarterback, the one, the only, J.J. Zacharyzen. J.J., thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Really, really pumped to talk some fantasy football. Yeah, well, we're real excited to have you here. Uh, real excited to uh, dig. I know Polly really wants to dig into your uh, your running back model, um, but I, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go first here, and I'm I want to kind of gauge your uh, how you feel about the current quarterback climate in today's NFL. Um, I read the other day that 22 quarterbacks that have been drafted in the first round since 2009 are no longer with their original team. Uh, only seven of 29 uh, are with their original team. It's like a hit rate of 24%. Yeah. When you see something like that, does it give you pause or does it make you change your strategy up? Like if you're in a startup draft and you see these younger quarterbacks that you're not sure about, like are you more apt to go for a – someone who, who with a better hit rate, like a running back or something like that from your model? Yeah. So, you know, it depends, obviously, you know, if you're in a super flex format or something like that, it's going to, you're going to be more inclined to, to go after the quarterback position and, and try to get that guy because realistically, you know, if you do hit, you know, that's, that's the thing is, is if you hit at the quarterback position, especially like in a super flex league, cause that's where, you know, the position is just going to matter a little bit more than if you're playing in a single quarterback league. If you hit at the quarterback position, you're going to be able to gain a lot of, of of equity by doing that. You know, if you were able to hit on a Kyler Murray, for instance, or, or get uh, you know Deshaun Watson, what have you, uh, you know, it's a, there's a, it's a very very high reward play. Now, obviously, you can get a Christian McCaffrey or something along those lines, um, but you know, generally speaking, from the standpoint of yes, you know, first round quarterbacks uh, in the NFL draft. Are certainly not bust or uh, hit uh, bust free, right? They're they're going to to bust and they're going to bust at a fairly high rate. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, as you move down the draft uh, and you look in the second round, third round, etc., um, you know, your th- those hit rates are becoming even worse, way worse, uh, exponentially worse. Um, and and that's really the the main reason why you're still going after those guys. That even you know, despite the fact that there is a, a slightly not 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 the best hit rate in the world. Um, you're really just throwing that dart and hoping that, you know, that probability, which it is, is going to be greater than what you're going to get at the second, third, and fourth round. It's interesting that you mentioned McCaffrey since he was far from the uh, consensus number one running back in his True. draft. Yep. And he was in a loaded uh, dr- a running back draft class. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned on your most recent uh, episode of your podcast, uh, the late round quarterback, that um, last year's draft class was a deep one. I think you said eight of the running backs met your model. I think is think it's what it was. Yeah, yeah. So, pre- yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. The the uh, the model looks at uh, percentile scores essentially, and anything over the 80th percentile is usually fairly strong from a hit rate perspective. Um, and, and last year there were eight guys who hit that threshold. Now the majority of them, ha- I mean, the majority of them were guys that you would expect. You know, you're looking at. Uh, CEH and Jonathan Taylor and uh, J.K. Dobbins, Clyde Edward, or, uh, uh, J.K. Dobbins and DeAndre Swift. Um, but there was one that did hit that 80% thre- 80th percentile threshold that did not hit, which was Keyshawn Vaughn. Um, but the other guys, 
uh, you know, it, it, they panned out for the most part. I mean, if you look at the the running backs, they came on late this past year, but if you look at the running backs and how they performed during the rookie year this past season, really weren't that many misses overall. I mean, you're not feeling that horrible. Um, even AJ Dillon to a degree at this point is not looking like that horrible of a miss if you were to draft him, especially where he ended up being drafted in rookie drafts. Um, but, you know, overall, it ended up being a, a pretty strong class. Yeah. So I think uh, this is where I think Polly wants to uh, to pick your brain on what exactly goes into um, like your model and, and the things you look at, the things you deem important. And uh, Polly, I'll just let you. I don't, don't want to put words in your mouth. <laughs> well, yeah, I've been uh, you know always follow your account and uh, I've been looking at the um, articles on Number Fire for identifying the breakout running backs and breakout wide receivers. Um, I think uh, Randall was really happy to see Jamar Jefferson pop for you. Um, I was pretty happy to see Kylan Hill pop for you. He was somebody that I wrote about in an article for our website uh, last year before I didn't, I didn't know he wasn't going to declare. Um, and then uh, we're all on the Javante Williams train yeah. and it seemed like he was uh, popping off too. But um, are you, you know, part of me Please when I was reading it, I was, I was seeing, you know, you don't want to draft that handcuff. But sometimes you do want to draft that handcuff that has the PPR pass catching upside. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the thing, so the, the prospecting and the finding breakout players thing are, are a little bit separate in that the, the prospecting that I do. So, yeah, I love, you know, my, my, I have a prospect model that looks at different factors and I can go through all those factors eventually if you guys want me to and talk through all that. But, uh, you know, I, I plug in a bunch of different factors. It spits out a score. And then once they get drafted, I have a draft capital piece to that, which is really, really important for the running back position for a lot of reasons. You know, like we, we want guys. So so the reason why draft capital matters is, is not just because guys who are drafted early end up getting first shot on their team. Right. You know, we don't get Aaron Joneses every day, um, but uh, they, they get first shot in their team. But also there's an embedded uh, evaluation aspect to uh, that draft capital number. And what I mean by that is these teams are putting millions and millions of dollars into prospecting, right? And so if they're saying, I'm deeming this player a first or second round pick, then yeah, there's something to that, right? I mean, we shouldn't be sitting in, you know, I shouldn't be sitting in my mom's basement and saying, no, this guy's better. I know, I know better than you guys. I mean, I can say that my model, uh, you know, if, if you were to draft strictly off of draft capital uh, at the running back position or the wide receiver position, um, and just take, you know, the RB1, we can go back to the Christian McCaffrey class and say the RB1 is Leonard Fournette, the RB2 is Christian McCaffrey, and just go down the list um, and draft that way. My model for, in terms of predicting the first three years of fantasy output for these running backs is, is uh, correlates twice as strongly to that aspect and to that than draft capital alone does. So draft capital alone is very helpful. I need it. You know, if I, if I were to remove draft capital from my model, my model alone is about equal to what draft capital is. It's a little bit worse. Um, but then whenever I add draft ca capital to that uh, model, all of a sudden it becomes a, a lot more predictive. And, and like I said, about twice as predictive uh, in terms of figuring out the first three years of output. But then uh, you mentioned like the breakout running back thing. Um, so what I did last summer uh, was I, I looked at different factors um, within, you know, non-rookies, really. I mean, some of them are rookies that end up breaking out. But basically what I did was at every position, I looked at ADP versus uh, how they finished. So postseason results. So on the X-axis, you have average draft position. And on the Y-axis, you have 
the amount of points that that player finished the season with. And so I broke it out by position because doing it any other way is a little bit difficult. So I broke it out by position and I found a trend, I found a trend line right from that data. And anyone who was above the trend line means that they exceeded expectation. Anyone below the trend line means that they didn't exceed expectation. They fell below expectation. The trend line is essentially expectation. So I found all running backs that exceeded expectation by a hundred or more points based on their ADP uh, since 2011, I think it was. And then from there, I looked at that sample of running backs and tried to find things that they shared in common and traits that they shared in common. And what I found from that uh, was that they usually are not handcuffs. The, the, these guys who are breaking out in your redraft leagues, this is more redraft focused than, than dynasty focused, uh, but they're typically... Um, you know, part of not, not handcuffs. They're part of ambiguous backfields. So uh, usually these are the RB twos that are being drafted on their own team because they're being drafted late. Um, and so uh, of those players, their average teammate ADP was at the end of the fifth round in the 12 team league, which tells you that there was, you know, people were questioning the starters in their backfields. They're part of this ambiguous backfield. Uh, they're usually pass catchers too. So you want to go after guys who can catch passes. Great examples. Alvin Kamara didn't know during his rookie year if he was going to be that big of a early down runner. Obviously, he turned into a machine, but uh, you know he had the, he had the pass catching chops at least. Um, and I think the last thing for running backs was that age really wasn't that big of a deal from a redraft perspective. Obviously, you know it just matters naturally uh, from a, from an age curve perspective in dynasty. But you know that was that was kind of how the running back stuff shaped out. And then I have one for wide receivers and tight ends as well. So that was more of the current NFL uh, and, and uh, how when you're drafting in a, in a seasonal league, uh, when you approach your draft, what, what you should be looking for for those like mid to late round breakouts. Um, and then the prospect model is the, the stuff, you know, that I just input a ton of stuff in and it spits something out. And then I kind of I follow it subjectively whenever I'm making my rankings and stuff. Um, it's interesting to me that you mentioned you put so much emphasis on draft capital and a lot of people do. Um, but a guy that you were high on last year that sort of, I guess, slipped through the cracks was, um, was, uh, James Robinson. Yeah. Um, how does something like that happen? How does he, how does he go? How does he not get drafted when, when, like you said, teams put so much money into trying to get this right. And then a guy like that. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I, I think the one thing, uh, so the one thing that my models definitely found at the running back position, not at wide receiver, but at running back is that school size uh, in, in the, the, the <clears throat> conference and the division that they're coming from doesn't really seem to matter. Um, <clears throat> so what that means is, you know, James Robinson coming from what Illinois State, uh, smaller school, um, you know, he's not getting a lot of love nationally anything like that, that's naturally going to push a guy like him down the board. I mean, any, I mean, even like Kenny Galladay, you know, going to a smaller score, Cooper cup, like they're not going to be first round picks given where they went to school for the most part. Um, wasn't so, he the epitome of, uh, sorry to interrupt. Wasn't he the epitome of an ambiguous backfield though? Once we started to kind of buy into this fact that Leonard Fournette actually might get cut. Um, I mean, that fits that fit, you know, didn't fit yeah. the draft capital, but it fit the ambiguousness, right? Yeah. Yeah. So once, you know, once he was filtered through the prospect model, which is looking strictly at like, you know, what these guys are projected to do through the first three years of their career, you know, if you were to filter him through and then get to the, to the, what, how to spot a breakout running back and redraft, he definitely fit the ambiguity aspect of things for sure. I mean, that's a huge reason. I mean, look, the fact that my model, like James Robinson, more than what and the way whenever I say the model liked him, it's that it's versus consensus for the most part, right? It's not like 
it's not like the model had him as like the RB three in the class or anything like that, because that would be insane. Right. Um, but the way that I sort of view this is that since draft capital is a part of that model, I, I had no expectation that James Robinson would hit the way that he hit. That would be ignorant. Right. Um, but you know, and, and not, not, and I, I should be fair too. Like I have a guy like that. I feel like in almost every class and sometimes it hits like I, I loved Aaron Jones coming out. So he hit as a late round pick, but then you know, I love Jeremy McNichols coming out and he didn't hit. Right. So there, there are Alex Barnes is another one. I liked Alex Barnes coming oh, out. Thank you, JJ. That <laughs> makes me feel good. There you go. There you go. I went to that. I went to that combine. I'm here in Indy and, uh, um, I guess I just fell in love with him at the combine and, and watching, too, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I don't know what happened. Uh, he got buried on the Tennessee depth chart, but, uh, oh, that makes me feel good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the crazy Ugh. thing, the crazy thing is my model doesn't even really care that much about athleticism metrics. It's usually just about hitting thresholds. So like even what he did at the combine didn't really do that much within the model itself. He just had pretty strong production, but, uh, you know, like there, there will be misses like that, but a guy like James Robinson, it was just, you know, it's one of those things where your goal in fantasy football is to just be better than your competition. Uh, and you know, James Robinson for me was someone who, I certainly did not think was going to be, you know, a top 20 running back in dynasty startups this year, you know, after his rookie year, but he was someone that I definitely liked more than my competition because I knew he had a great uh, production profile. You know, I knew that he, he fit the role, fit the part in the spreadsheets at the very least. Um, and then, you know, he didn't test horrifically bad. Um, and then obviously just things started to roll his way as the off season unfolded. And as the summer unfolded with Leonard Fournette getting cut, you know, Divina Zigbo, uh, was injured. Uh, and then you had Raquel Armstead getting COVID. Um, and so like everything really fell into place for James Robinson. And then, Oh, by the way, he just ended up being a good running back too. So, yeah. you know, I, I just, it was just a lot of things, you know, I don't want to, I, I try to be very careful about saying like, you know, my model loved this guy or my model, my model loved that guy in comparison to what other people liked or, you know, viewed that player going into the season. Hey, you can be modest. We'll pump you up. <laughs> that's, what, that's all we're here for. Higher than the consensus, I believe, is yeah. the term. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and there's guys, there's guys that I miss on all the time, guys that I'll hit on. I mean, he, he's just one of those players where, like, I just – you know, dart throws scooped them up everywhere. And I'm just, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just, I got like, there's, there's luck involved in that. There's no doubt that there's luck involved in that. But that's awesome though. Right. When you just, those dart oh, yeah. throws hit like that, it's just <laughs> yeah. like, nothing better. Yeah. yeah it's, it's well, I think if you have a Jeremy McNichols and a Alex Barnes and a James Robinson in your pocket and James Robinson hits, you're still doing great. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. 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 So I will I will be vocal and open about those kinds of players that my model likes for whatever reason because I know and I'm trusting that what I'm testing and what I'm looking at with this model is is not BS. You know that it that it, there's there's logic and reason behind it so I can trust it. Well, I also saw that you said you're not going to be too big on this running back class outside the first few guys. I you know, the more I look and the more I look at, you know, holes in some of these guys' games, um, Ramondre, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, guys like that, um, you know, Chuba, Chuba, um, I'm kind of with you, you know, really outside of uh, of Najee and Etienne, and we love Javante, and then um, I'm I'm warming up to Michael Carter a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm warming up to Kenny Gainwell if he gets into the right kind of pass catching role. But then kind of pretty meh after that. But there's a couple guys that I like down the line that we mentioned about earlier 
is is the uh, um, Kylan Hill and then uh, Randall's favorite, uh, one of his favorites, Jamar Jefferson. Yep. What about those guys were popping on your model? Yeah, so you know the uh, Kylan Hill is someone I'm I'm incredibly intrigued by. Uh, looking at his uh, profile in general, so so to give you just like a, a really high level of what this model is looking at. Um, so when it comes to size, uh, it matters more at the running back position. I found at least uh, than it does at wide receiver. And so when I'm talking size, I'm talking BMI. I'm not talking like you know height or anything like that. Just straight up BMI. Um, it matters a lot less the wide receiver position these days, I think, because there are so many different archetypes for wide receivers that, you know, one guy is not going to, that, that's a reason why I'm not necessarily like as low as other people in the analytics world on Devonte Smith, because I, 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 you know, he's good. Like his, his production's incredible. You know, it's, it's really hard for me to see a scenario where he's like completely irrelevant at the next level because he weighs 170 pounds. But regardless at the running back position, I'm looking at like BMI, uh, I'm looking at, uh, I'm just looking at my model right now. I have a, a speed score threshold for them. So they're, they're weight adjusted 40 time. And then the three metrics that I'm looking at from a production standpoint are total touchdown, best season, total touchdown share. So uh, whatever season they had their highest total touchdown share, that'll be thrown in there. So that's the percentage of team touchdowns scored by that player. Uh, best season reception share. So that's the best, uh, you know, if you just take receptions divided by completions on that team, whatever the best season was for them, that'll go there. Uh, and then total yards per team play is the most predictive of the three metrics or the one that that's weighted heavy heaviest. And I think the, the main reason for that is because it kind of combines like efficiency, uh, receiving skills a little bit um, and market share all in the all in the one metric. And then uh, on top of that, I'm looking at a, a teammate score, which, you know, if, if a guy shared a backfield with a pro, um, he'll get a little bump there. So like a Javante Williams and Michael Carter both getting bumps as a result of that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the draft, the draft capital, those are the, those are the, really the things that are being inputted into this model that spits out a score. Um, and so, you know, Kylan Hill, uh, when I look at his profile, uh, I just, you know, I, I mentioned this on the podcast, but he's fifth in reception share in this class, at least the guys that I'm looking at within this class. Cause you can go on forever. Technically, if you're looking at every single human being that's up for, you know, draft eligible at running back, but uh, of the 24 guys that I took from DynastyLeagueFootball.com's rankings, Kylan Hill was fifth best in reception share. And what was really interesting about him, though, is that his size profile is a lot different than the guys ahead of him. He's a bigger bodied guy than those players. Um, and that, to me, uh, is just intriguing in general. You know, it's almost like a I, I don't want to say I, I, you know, I haven't watched enough of these guys, but it's almost like a Camara type profile. Uh, what I see from Hill Camara had a a much better receiving profile than Kylan Hill was more of a, an early down guy um, in school. Um, but you get sort of those vibes that he could be a pretty dynamic pass catcher at a decent size at the next level. Um, and that's not the easiest thing to find. Um, and so that that's what really made Kylan Hill pop. And then uh, for uh, Jamar Jefferson, uh, he was someone who was just pretty consistent across the board. And then, you know, on top of that, you know, I mentioned earlier, I didn't mention age as part of the the model because it doesn't really seem to matter that much at running back. I think a lot of that is because it's embedded in draft capital a little bit where, you know, older running backs just generally aren't getting drafted that high. Um, so I know that Najee Harris is a little bit different this year, but this generally doesn't happen. So um, I think that's part of the reason why age doesn't matter that much within the model. It's still a factor that you can subjectively sort of throw in there. But um, yeah, with, with, with uh, Jamar Jefferson, I mean, the dude had over 1500 scrimmage yards as a freshman. Um, and then you, you look at, you look at what he did within the three metrics that I'm looking at. He's, 
basically below average. Um, I mean, he's below average compared to the class in none of them. But if you look at successful running backs in fantasy in the NFL right now, if you look at all running backs that had multiple top 20 seasons since 2011, he's barely below what those guys did in college from a production standpoint. Um, and I, I just, you know, it's interesting though, because now he's getting a lot of love in the fantasy industry, but he's not getting that same kind of love nationally. And that always scares me a little bit because that means that it's very likely that he's not going to have the draft capital that we would want him to have to, to be, you know, a true, true, um, you know, fantasy asset, but he's definitely someone that I'm looking out for. You know, I hope that he, he, you know, I hope he proves me wrong and he has a higher draft capital than I'm expecting. Well, yeah, if one of these guys ends up like behind Derrick Henry, like Alex yeah, Barnes, right, right. we may never know. I'm glad to see that you have that teammate score kind of uh, baked in there because without acknowledging that, you could miss out on guys like uh, Jacobs and right. Miles Sanders and Antonio Gibson. Yep. Um, so yeah, if, there isn't that, say, if there isn't uh, that teammate on the team, uh, it, it, is it just kind of a moot point and the score is just nil? Um, yeah. What do you look at like from Jav- J- Jamar or Javante Williams and Michael Carter, for example, how does that balance out? Cause they're both pretty damn good. Yeah. So the idea behind anything, uh, with prospecting through data is that good players went out, right? Good players are going to find the field. Good players are going to get the ball. Good players are going to get targeted. Um, and so if they have good teammates around them, you can build narratives and, and, you know, understand their production a little bit better. You know, you can do it at wide receiver, whether you're looking at what happened with AJ Brown and DK Metcalf, although AJ Brown's numbers were still out of control, you know, DK Metcalf though, to a degree, didn't have the, the best production in the world. Um, and then you can make the argument, you know, last year people were making the argument for like Henry Ruggs, but you know, the, you can still give those scenarios context and still understand, you know, like Ruggs is a perfect example where you know that he had pro teammates on his team, very good ones too. But even still, you know, of all first round draft picks since my database was built, he had, I think, the the the, the absolute worst stat score uh, in that database. And and we know that, you know, of course, again, it's a, a little bit different with a guy like Ruggs because he's playing with lots and lots of first rounders and good pass catchers and such. Um, but in the end, you know, just because it was so glaring, you have to at least throw out that red flag and say, this is a little bit scary. So, but the thing is when, when I'm looking at like Michael Carter, for instance, his, his production profile really is not that bad. Uh, it's actually almost identical to Javante Williams because they both did almost the same thing in college this past year, right? From a production standpoint, the difference is that Williams has that prototypical size, uh, and Michael Carter does not. And that's, that's what the model's seeing. And that's why the model has Javante Williams as the RB one right now. And I was surprised by that. Uh, but they, they, the model has Javante Williams as the RB one. Michael Carter is not that high, he's still relatively high compared to the rest of the class. Um, but the fact that you can build that narrative and say, Michael Carter had good production. He had a good stat score. He had good numbers while also playing with Javante Williams. That's right. just a big, that, that's a big plus for him. Whereas, you know, if a guy like uh, Jamar Jefferson uh, you know, isn't playing with someone and he's just doing his own thing as a freshman, you know, we can't knock him for that because he did ball out whenever he got, you know, when, whenever it's his turn. Um, but yeah, I mean, if there was another guy in that backfield who he ended up beating, then that's even better for him. But it's one of those things where you're, you're mostly bolstering someone up as opposed to just like dropping them down. So there's no, there's no, ne- there's no negative scores. I should say then for the teammate score, it's all either zero or something. Okay. That's what I was asking. So it, it's zero basically if there's not yes. another factor. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I like to say scout the player, not the depth chart. Yeah, 
Yeah. I think it's very fair. And, and to me, to me, it's one of those things where like, you know, if you see a guy is beating pro competition uh, and doing it consistently throughout, I mean, like, uh, you know, like if you look at like chase or something like that and you're, you're comparing it, I mean, he, he, he bought, he was a year younger than, than Justin Jefferson and he balled out, right? Like he, he went nuts and production wise, he was right there with him. And then we see Justin Jefferson do what he did, having one of the, if not the most prolific wide rookie wide receiver season ever, that should make you feel a little bit better about the floor of Chase, just given what he was able to do with Jefferson there, right? Um, and, and given his age and all that kind of stuff. So that's sort of how I'm using teammates mostly and how I'm, how I'm analyzing teammates. Um, you know, it's just a, a piece of it. It's not, it's not the main part of it. Cool. Now, now I got a quick question for you. Let's circle back a little bit to these 2020 running backs. <clears throat> uh, James, Ro- James Robinson, how do you view him this year? Uh, where are you placing him in your rankings? Um, what do you think? Is he going to hold down a top spot? They draft him. They bring him in the vet. How are you feeling? The, I think that the James Robinson dilemma is one of the hardest that we've faced in a really long time at the position uh, from, from a dynasty valuation standpoint. Because, you know, on one hand, if I were running the Jags, I would not touch, I would not do a thing at the running back position. Why, why would you do anything? Right. The problem, the problem because is Trent that Balky's an idiot. Yeah. yeah that. <clears throat> the, the, the problem is uh, they don't have a lot of depth in that, on that depth chart. And so they are likely to bring someone on in some way could be free agency. I don't, I mean, they're not going to go after like Aaron Jones, but it, it could be free agency. Uh, or it could be the draft because they do have a lot of draft capital. And that's and then you you add on top of that the regime change and the coaching change. And we don't know exactly what that's going to look like for an undrafted rookie. Now, I'm not someone who looks at James Robinson and says he was undrafted. Therefore, what he did during his rookie season is irrelevant. I'm not I'm not going to approach it from that standpoint because he's already proven to be an outlier. Right, he's already proven that it, no, no one. Really, it's very rare for these undrafted guys to do what he did. You know, he's going down like the Arian Foster route. Yeah. Um, and so, so I'm not really that concerned about his status from that perspective of like his skill. I'm more worried about his status from the perspective of how his new coaches are going to view him, what the current depth chart looks like, and the fact that they have a lot of draft capital and cap space. And so, I think that there are enough on the things on the negative end that I would probably, I think that he's properly valued right now. First of all, I think he's like right on the nose from a startup ADP standpoint, exactly where he should be. Um, So I'm not buying, probably not selling either where I have him. just kind of riding it out and seeing what happens. I know it's kind of a lame answer, but I just feel like it's, you can play both sides. And in those scenarios, I generally just kind of hold. Yeah, absolutely. Polly likes to say that players can be buys and sells at the same time. They can exist in that same plane. It sounds to me like you feel like James Robinson exists in that plane where right now you're not doing either. You could make an argument to sell and you could make an argument to buy. So it's, it's best to just kind of like wait and see where things shake out. Totally. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was just thinking that I I say that a lot of, a lot of players exist in that, (laughs) that buy, sell, hold, realm all at the same time whereas if if i feel like i can get a really good price for him in a dynasty i'm buying uh same as selling and if nothing's coming my way and i'm not actively shopping him then i'm holding him i would like to think that you know even with the new coaching regime that cooler heads will prevail 
and realize yeah. that they have a lot of other holes to fill. And I think you made a great comp in Arian Foster, uh, JJ. I think he is more. He's the only comp. He is more Arian Foster yeah. than he is Philip Lindsay. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. to me, um, yeah. especially size and just dominance. So you would think that the new coaching staff would go, okay, we've got that locked up. And right. you mentioned, yeah, they're not going to bring in an Aaron Jones, but they're going to bring in somebody because they are thin. Maybe Jamal Williams from that same team. Uh, yeah, somebody see, more in that ilk. Yeah, um, I could see like a, I could see like a James Connor or something like that. Just like yeah. a guy who is kind of a jag, but oh, no pun intended. But. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, someone, someone who can who can step in and just be a body for them. And then, so here's the other thing with James Robinson that I didn't mention. His workload was absolutely insane last year. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I say that from the perspective of uh, his running back rush share. If he were to make, if he didn't get hurt those final two games, he would have, and I only, this only goes back to 2011 in my database. So I don't have this even further back, but he would have had by far, by far, wouldn't have even been close the highest running back rush share of any running back since 2011. That's better than CMC from a couple of years ago when all he did was gobble up all of those touches in that backfield and they had like Reggie Bonifant and stuff. Better so, than Derrick Henry the last two years. Yes, yes. His, his running back rush share was... was So to give you some context, the highest over, since 2011, I think was Christian McCaffrey at 92%. So he had 92% of the team's running back rushes the year that he really, really broke out and went nuts. So James, James Robinson was pacing to 96% when, when, in, in this backfield. Ooh, so there's, there is no way, there's no way he's going to maintain that year over year. And that's another thing that's scary is that we're looking at his production from that perspective, from the perspective of him owning that backfield more than any other running back owns a backfield. And so that's, that's the other piece that's a little bit scary is that there's absolutely going to be regression coming, you know, in that running back rush share uh, statistic. Well, cool. I want to move the chains a little bit. I, I want to ask you about how you became uh, to be known as the late round quarterback, uh, how you got that nickname. And and I want to talk about the quarterbacks in this class, if if, uh, if you can. Yeah, so I haven't really dug into the quarterback stuff yet. I've really just mostly done <clears throat> some running back and, and a little bit of wide receiver work. Um, I'm going to be doing the same thing that I did for running backs for wide receivers for next week. Um, and I actually don't even have a prospect model for quarterbacks because it's so difficult to, to nail that analytically. Um, but I can at least answer the, the, I, I don't think it's really that possible to be honest. I mean, there's, there's some good stuff that I, I know I'm going on a little bit of a tangent. There's some good stuff that like my colleague at number fire, Jim Sonis does, uh, where he looks at some factors that like three really basic factors that seem to correlate well with success at the quarterback position at the next level. Um, but even he'll admit, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very difficult position to nail. And that's why teams have so much issue nail issues nailing. Absolutely. It I think a lot of it too stems from the fact that so much is, is between the ears and that's very, very difficult to capture in any way. Right. Um, and so what, whether even, you know, you're interviewing the guy or you're, uh, looking at it analytically, it's just very difficult. You can't um, quantify that. Yeah, you can't, it's, it's, it's tough. And it's not something that I really, you know, I'd rather just, be really good at nailing down these running backs and wide receivers, the positions that are more important in fantasy than to, you know, really drill down at the quarterback position and do that. So, so that sort of goes back to the very first question I asked you with, with so much uncertainty uh, at the quarterback landscape now and the teams that you, you even said they, they, they're paid to do this Yep, and they're paid millions of dollars to do this. They're getting it wrong. Yep. Uh, would it behoove someone to even in a super flex, 
to reach for a known quantity uh, over some of these quarterbacks. And, you know, and, and I know that, that most of the time in a super flex league, the thing is you want to get two quarterbacks as almost as quickly as you can and quarterbacks go, go quick. Uh, but it's always been my strategy to reach for the, the more known than the more unknown and, and guys leaning on these new quarterbacks that we haven't ever seen before. It's like the Justin Herbert's are rare. Yeah, it's true. Uh, those, those guys don't, don't come around often. Um, yeah. even Mahomes wasn't the first quarterback drafted in his rookie year. Everybody right. was all over Trubisky and, and they thought Mahomes was more of a project. Right. Yeah, so you know the one thing that that really sort of answers this pretty directly is the fact if you look at the dynasty or if you look at any landscape, redraft or dynasty right now, you're going to look at eight quarterbacks that you feel really really good about, eight or nine, let's say, right? That you're going to feel really really good about. Well, there's 12 teams in your league and if you're both if you're if you're all starting two quarterbacks, then that means if there's a big drop off after that eight, then a lot of people are going to have question marks at quarterback on their rosters. So, what that means is uh, yeah, the demand dri- is driven up. You know, you should be going after those quarterbacks. But what what it also means, you know, if you look at uh, dynasty ADP year over year, there, there's there's more turnover than I think people sometimes realize at that quarterback position um, from from a from a turnover standpoint. From from like a you know this guy's ranked third this year, now he's ranked ninth. You know that that sort of sort of. Issue. I mean, even like Aaron Rodgers last year to this year, right? We were seeing a a complete change, a complete one eighty on the Perfect way that dude. Viewed Aaron Rodgers, right? Um, and I think that in our minds, we are sort of thinking that, you know, oh no, Aaron Rodgers has always been a top six dynasty quarterback. And, and no, last year, Aaron Rodgers was like the QB 10 or 11 going into the season, right? And so there's a, there's a lot more turnover at the quarterback position than people realize. And this actually goes back to, you know, your original question about how the late round quarterback started and stuff. Um, it was all a redraft focused. I mean, back in, I, I wrote the ebook back in 2012 now. Um, and so it's been, been a while. I feel like an old man now after, after that. But uh, so I, I wrote the ebook back in 2012. Um, and it was at a time where, uh, you know, fantasy analysts were telling everyone to draft quarterbacks early. Um, and, and I, you know, I just wanted to lead with logic and reason and explain why that just didn't make a lot of sense. Um, and so I wrote this ebook, I published it and gained some traction from it. Cause not only was it something that was going against the grain, but it was something that at least had some substance to it. You know, I wasn't just being different just to be different. And so, um, yeah, the late round quarterback was then born. And then, you know, as the seasons progressed, it was like, you know, it just became more and more advantageous to be drafting guys late and late and late. Um, and so that's how that was sort of born, but you know, to, to that strategy, perfect example of like what the strategy is about. Uh, and it's a little, it's, it's changing a little bit. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, from like 2011 through 2019, if you looked at ADP to postseason results, so I'm going back to what I talked about a little bit earlier on the show, but if you were to look at ADP to postseason result, um, by, by, uh, across those seasons, uh, and if you looked at only the QB one to the QB 12, there was zero correlation, zero between where a QB one to QB 12 was drafted and how many fantasy points that quarterback scored in that season, which tells you that you could hypothetically throw a dart, pick the QB 11. And he had just as good of a chance to be the QB one that season as the QB one that was being drafted. And, and that that's how insane the turnover has been at quarterback, but everyone sees it as this, like he's around forever and he's always been their starter. So therefore, but he's not, <clears throat> he's not always this like 
great fantasy asset. There's there's a lot of change and turnover at the position. And I think that's something that just is generally you know underrated and and doesn't get talked about enough uh, within the space because you know we see it as like this secure position, but it's one of the least secure positions. Absolutely. Yep. Isn't uh-huh. it about uh, uh, value over replacement as well? Yeah. So there's you know I have my my issues with with VORP formulas, like the, the idea of value of a replacement to me, I mean, I, I, I think there's a lot of validity to it, but the, the argument that I would push from a, if you're looking at it like straight mathematical, um, but the idea around it is right. Like you want the most value versus the rest of the position, right? The problem is that when you're drafting, a lot of that is based on like projections, for instance, so you're saying I'm projecting this guy to be the QB two. This is where the baseline QB is being projected. And here the point difference is a hundred and that's a greater point difference than what we're getting at the running back baseline to the, where the running back would be drafted and so on. And so the issue that I have with that is that number one, projections are going to be wrong all the time. I build projections, other people, you know, we have projections that number fire and they're impossible to be, you're never going to be hundred percent right with projections. It's just not how it works, right? You're forecasting. Um, and so you're, you're basing your decision-making off of projections, which is inherently flawed. Uh, so I'm not even when I'm drafting my, my teams, I'm, I'm not doing it just based off of straight projections or anything. I mean, there's a field component to it. you have to understand how your room is drafting? You have to understand where, 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 where tier drop-offs occur. You have to, you, this is, there's a psychological component to this. That's not just straight spreadsheets. And that's something that I think people get wrong a lot. Um, but so there's that component to it. Um, but then there's also the fact that what is your baseline player? Who is your baseline player? Now, there's been a lot of studies that show that, let's say a quarterback, you know, a lot of people might say the QB 12 is the baseline because there's 12 teams in our league. We're all starting one quarterback. You know, QB 12 is the baseline quarterback. Well, I would argue that, you know, over the last seven years on one of my podcasts called Living the Stream, we have used we have used the waiver wire, guys who have been rostered in 33% of or fewer leagues. And on average, we're streaming the QB6, QB7 in terms of like our on a points per game basis, in terms of like our Frankenstein. So I would argue with you that that baseline is not the QB12. It's not, it's like the QB7 or 8, realistically. Um, You know, it's a little bit different these days based on what happened last year and sort of how the league is moving. But for the last decade, for the most part, uh, that baseline quarterback has been a lot higher and a lot better than what people realize because when you're doing those VORP calculations, you're making the assumption that people are playing the same players every single week. When we are not doing it, fantasy football is a weekly game where we are interchange, we're changing quarterbacks in and out of our lineup all the time. And to assume that the person who drafts Matt Ryan as the QB 12 is going to use Matt Ryan week in and week out, I think is flawed. And so the idea of value of a replacement to me is correct. Like the general idea but I think that the way people uh, use it and initiate it is kind of flawed. Uh, you mentioned something I say all the time. You have to know your room. You have to know your opponents. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's it's who you're drafting with. There there is a there is a part of this that you cannot quantify in a stat. Yeah. And as much as analytic people want to drive this towards analytics, and don't get me wrong, analytics have their place. I'm not saying that they don't. When it comes to a draft. Uh, it's, it's, it's organized chaos, it's, yeah. it's, you know, pretty much you, you have to know who you're drafting with. Yeah, for sure. Now I want to bring, I want to ask a question just because we had a trade recently in the NFL. Now I'm kind of opening up a can of worms here and Polly, I'm going to ask you to 
not go off for 20 minutes about the Colts on the pod. <laughs> I'll tonight. mute my so mic. Can, yeah, yeah. Can we mute the guy, please? Term. Um, but I did I did want to kind of pick your brain real quick and see what you thought about Carson Wentz, the trade. Uh, how do you view him um, moving forward here? Do you think he still has something left in the tank, or do you think he was starting to fizzle out? Uh, I mean, there's been multiple debates on Twitter over this. Uh, I'm seeing people that you know are completely off of him two weeks ago that are now all over him now. Um, you know, from an NFL standpoint and from a fantasy standpoint, how do you feel about the trade and his value going forward? I mean, I think actions speak louder and, uh, I, I, you know, sometimes I, I do analysis and I don't know exactly where I stand on a player until I'm in like a startup draft. And I, you know, I'm either drafting him or I'm not drafting him. And Carson Wentz this in January, I took him as QB 25 in a startup because he was sitting there and I'm, uh, you know, I was, wow. I was, all, I was all over it. Um, and so I had like, I, I went after Carson Wentz. I was ready and hoping that Indy would be his spot. Obviously you're, you're matching him back up with Frank Reich. Um, and, and hopefully we can re- relive that magic. I'll be honest. I mean, like it's, it's really hard. I don't think I've really voiced this anywhere either. So this, this might be a, a very like raw answer to this, but unscripted, uh, unscripted. yeah, just like something that, I, that I've just like thought about in my brain. So I've never actually verbalized it. So it might sound weird, but I, I do think that people might be overrating and overstating what happened live. Um, and I, I, I say that. I say Thank that you. Because, because he's working behind just this horrendous offensive line, just an absolute S show offensive line. He has absolutely zero weapons. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely zero weapons. I just, you know, I'm watching out for the kids out there. Uh, you know, zero weapons to, to work with. And then Jalen Hurts comes in. And if you look at Jalen Hurts, I mean, granted, look, Jalen Hurts is a rookie during a pandemic season, and he can do a whole lot with his legs. And there's, you know, that component in terms of the way that like NFL front offices look at that, they they don't to me they don't they don't they they understate the uh, importance and the ability and what that can do for a team's offense for for extending drives and such with what quarterbacks can do with their legs. So this is not a knock on Jalen Hurts at all, but a lot of people are viewing Jalen Hurts as a very like that he had this really strong end of season uh you know stretch passing the ball um and it really wasn't that strong when you look you know peel back the curtain a little bit and and, and look at uh what these guys did specifically in clean pockets so Carson Wentz had a better adjusted completion percentage and and quarterback rating in a clean pocket last year than Jalen Hurts did um and it's not to say that we should set the standard of Carson Wentz uh, in his passing ability to a rookie Jalen Hurts, uh, who was not even a first round pick. Uh, but it's just to say that if you look at where they ranked, Jalen Hurts was dead last among relevant quarterbacks. Top, I think the the filter on, on Pro Football Focus goes up to the the top forty one quarterbacks. He was forty first. Carson Wentz was like four or five spots ahead of him. And so what I think that tells me at least is that the situation was trash. Period. Yep. Right. Like even if you want to say. Carson Wentz was bad. Sure. He had a bad season. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think that, you know, I think that Wentz was probably a little bit overvalued from a dynasty standpoint going into last year. Um, and you could argue that he, that he has been at times throughout his career. Um, but it's, it's not like he's shown, you know, it's not like he's been this horrendous throughout his entire career. Um, and if you look at his adjusting completion numbers with Frank Reich, um, 
it's a little bit, you know, you it's, you can have a little bit of optimism surrounding that. So I, I feel pretty good about him going to Indy. If you were going to like Chicago or something, his career might be over. But I think that this, yeah. I think that this is the one spot where he can really turn things around and, and be, you know, not only relevant on, on in real football, but in fantasy football as well. Now so these guys, these guys will tell you that I have voiced that very same opinion and was all about go get Carson Wentz. As soon as, as soon as he was benched, yep. uh, I said, you guys you go out there and trade for Carson Wentz this off season. I was tr- go trade for Carson Wentz and, tr- and if you have to have Jalen hurts, I'm, I'm, I'm selling. Yeah. Uh, and I have sold, uh, so far this off season. And, and to hear you say that makes me feel good. Um, because I have, I have voiced those same opinions that, uh, it was a complete shit show and they did him no favors. Yeah. The offensive line was atrocious. Um, and you know, Hertz came in and made some plays with his legs and it made it look a lot better than it was. Um, yeah. and Hey, Hertz may even still turn out to be a, a, a decent starter. I don't see it, but, um, as far as Wentz goes, I'm I was all about buying Wentz at a discount, and I think that he could absolutely resurrect his career. I think the Colts they made a great trade. Yeah, you were uh, term, and if I could weigh in because I'm the the resident Colts fan, I won't dominate you know the conversation too much, but uh, I'll try not to. But that's between you, were, you and Beasy. That's between <laughs> I'm timing you, dude. Two minutes. You were go. all over that. You and our uh, and our other co-founder Chalk were all over. Go by. Uh, Wentz and JJ getting him 25th in the startup. That's sick. I mean, in redraft leagues, if I could get him, you know, as QB 13 to 17 in that range, I feel like I'm getting big time QB one upside. And I think that's where we're going to be able to get him this year. And the narrative is about that clean pocket. And I'm glad you brought it up. He was better than Hertz, but he was really bad across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, led the NFL in interceptions from a clean pocket. I think he, according to Pro Football Focus, he had a clean pocket 78% of the time. Not to knock Pro, pro Football for, Focus, but it makes me want to watch the whole damn season and vet that because yeah. I cannot believe with how bad their offensive line was that he had a clean pocket that much of the time. But you can't just look at the clean pocket. you got to look at weapons. I mean, Jesus, we finished the previous season with a converted quarterback, Greg Ward, into the wide receiver position. And he was a, still a big part of their offense last year. Yeah. He shouldn't have been. I mean, they didn't have much to go on. I don't think they had a whole lot of Ertz and Goddard at the same time, which is obviously their model is to have those guys both on the field at the same time. The Colts need to get some weapons. There's talk of them being able to retain T.Y. at a homers a hometown discount because the market for him is not that strong. And there's talk of us going after Chris Godwin. There's talk of us going after Jonu Smith and Hunter Henry and you see Zach what Godwin said today? Uh No. Godwin said today that uh, he loves playing in Tampa and that he would not um, he would not jeopardize that for a few extra dollars. He Ooh. would not jeopardize his happiness as a okay. as a player for a few extra dollars somewhere else. Well, they can tag him according to the Tampa Bay Gazette, one of their um, local papers. They. The team, they said, is not likely to tag anyone just because of the the money involved at each position. But I think that Godwin would be the most likely to be tagged. But at any rate, we need to bring in somebody like that. We need to bring in a tight end because Wentz loves throwing to the tight ends. But um, I guess to finish my thought, 
recency bias is going to put people, you know, in a bad place with Wentz. And I think Mm -hmm. he's in a much better situation um, with Reich and with a powerful running game and with one of the best offensive lines and hopefully a few more weapons. I mean, it's one of those things we've talked about this for since we started this podcast. We've always said to understand the situation, you know, as a whole, not just when you're when you're evaluating a player. Look at what's going on around him. Look at the offensive line. Look at the coaching. Look at the you know wh- who are his weapons. Who there's so much that gets you know people are so quick to just say a person is terrible and that they're just awful at football. And especially guys that have been productive early in their careers and maybe hit like a year where they just, you know, something everything just kind of went wrong for them. I mean, they get thrown under the bus, people Zeke. wash them, and that's it. Zeke. Zeke. Zeke last year. Yeah, good <laughs> yeah. example. We're seeing him go into like what in super flex drafts into the third, fourth. Yeah, it's absolutely I mean, ridiculous. It, it's ridiculous. It's, it's absolutely wild. And you know, again, it's you gotta look at the situations as a whole, not just you know, just from one, like analyzing one player, like look at what's happening around him. I can't stress how important that is. And it doesn't take that much longer to look at that whole situation than it does just look at one player. So it makes a big difference when you're looking at the whole. We have an unscripted saying uh, called by the dip. By the dip, baby. By the dip. I'm, I'm going to yeah. come right at you, JJ. Do you think Dak gets uh, tagged again? I do not. Um, I, I think that they're going to get a deal done uh, in Dallas. I, I, I mean, if they don't, it's going to be chaos, but I, I don't think they're going to tag them. No. Let's just say for the sake of this entertainment purposes that they don't get a deal done yeah. and Dak is a free agent. Oof. <laughs> I like, mean... Dominoes around the the entire <laughs> league, right? Yeah, I mean he'd he'd become he'd become the guy. I would assume you know that that folks are trying to that that teams are going to go after. It's gonna you know look the the thing is with Zeke, I agree with you guys in terms of of his uh, value just being insane right now. I mean it, it, when I saw even like redraft ADP was just ridiculous, yeah. stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean when you look at l- last season, he was totally fine slash kind of incredible. On a, on a points per game basis with Dak, right? And then everything just fell apart with the whole offense fell apart without him. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where I just, it's hard to envision a scenario where they would let that happen given they now have a sample of that team without Dak and it was not pretty. Um, but if it does happen, then yeah, I mean, there's going to be, he's going to get what he wants elsewhere. He's going to be able to get that kind of deal. I, I would imagine if he were to hit the open market, someone like Bill Belichick would... Would, yeah, I, I, they I have enough cap space that they can just name your price. I'd like to see him go to Washington and stay in the division. Oh, that's a go. Him Ooh, and Terry McLaurin. Spicy. <laughs> yeah, that's spicy. I mean, all Antonio Gibson. Let's get it. Oh, I don't boy. see him going anywhere. I don't see Deshaun Watson going anywhere either. And there were some I, reports. No, I've, I've uh, been yeah, steadfast that they're not going to trade Deshaun Watson. You and I both have been term on Twitter, but just banging the drum that he has no leverage. None. Whatsoever. Um, I think them firing the president of operations recently may have been their way of letting him know, you know, the tides are going to change for you. And for us, maybe just, you know, a little feel good, like, hey, we're, we're trying here. But he has no leverage, absolutely no leverage. Um, I don't see any reason why they would trade him. I don't see any reason why the Cowboys would let Dak go. I mean, they're going to tag him if they can't get a I don't out. see any reason why the Cowboys have let it go this far. I no, it doesn't make sense. And they waited so long, and then he got hurt. And then at that point, you know, there was no point in doing it. But um, now they should be locking him up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
another question for you here. We're gonna run, since we're kind of talking on the free agency frenzy here, and there's been a lot of uh, a lot of talk going on. A couple guys I wouldn't mind picking your brain over. Uh, Allen Robinson. Think the Bears tag him? You think he walks? What do you think about him for twenty twenty one? I think he's gone. Um, I, I mean, I, I he's obviously one of the best wide receivers in the game, in my opinion. I mean, it's just hard to find a true alpha like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I just want him to, I, yeah, I just want, I mean, dating back to high school, basically. Uh, I, I would love, I would love to see him, you know, find a spot where he can, I mean, still be an alpha, obviously. Like I I would rather him not go to like a green Bay, for instance, I'd rather, you know, just, just because Devante is there, you know, I'd rather like a Juju go to, go to green Bay or something like that for, I just think the fit makes a lot more sense. Um, but there, I mean, you know, 32 teams or at least 25 ish teams could use an alpha, like, like, uh, Allen Robinson. And I do think he's not going to be in Chicago. How about Miami? Yeah. Miami would, would work. I would be a little concerned about his fantasy potential a little bit with, uh, with Tua having some question marks after what we saw last year. But, um, I mean, he would walk into a target share probably of 30 plus percent. So he would, he would definitely be the guy there. How confident are you in Tua moving forward in 21, just in terms of him progressing the next level? Or do you feel confident confident about him as a QB1? Not totally. Uh, so I, I've done uh, studies on – so I, I'm a firm believer that what we see out of players early in their careers is what they are. Like they're not, they're not lying, right? And I've done studies on this uh, specifically at quarterback. I did them a while ago. But specifically at quarterback – um, if you look at the first year or two of a quarterback's career, you generally know uh, whether or not they're going to be good in the NFL. Um, it's very, very rare for quarterbacks to uh, do something big after not doing much at all. And the one thing that actually changes that is usually a massive change of scenery. So uh, you can go back to Alex Smith uh, going to the Chiefs. You could go back to Drew Brees going from uh, the Chargers to the Saints. Um, and you could go to Ryan Tannehill, right. Going from Miami to Tennessee. Um, and then the one player who stuck on the same team that sort of beat the trend, uh, was Jared Goff, who from year one to year two saw one of the biggest leaps that we've ever seen, uh, a quarterback have just in general. And then now this past year, we're seeing Josh Allen do that a little bit. And I know that I had named a bunch of examples, but those examples also range like the last 20 years. And that's really the extent of what we see at the position, um, in terms of guys that, just randomly or, you know, through obviously hard work and dedication, but who, who then make that leap sort of seemingly out of nowhere. So um, what you, you, you're pretty set on then what we've seen out of Sam Darnold is what we're going to get. So that's the thing is, is you can make the bet at least it, it all goes back to like, like from like a dynasty standpoint, it all goes back to like market value. Right. So <clears throat> if Sam Darnold were and like, like I use the same, the same philosophy with, running backs and wide receivers because running backs, especially running backs who don't perform well, their rookie season, uh, they generally do not go on to be RB ones in fantasy football wide receivers. You can make a similar argument, but the thing is, is that if the, if the cost to acquire those players is still is low, right? Like Brian Edwards, like I'm cool with buying Brian Edwards right now because he's cheap. It doesn't matter. Right. But last year, you know, I, I had two years ago, I had Nikhil Harry as the wide receiver one in, in his class, right? And that was wrong, but I had him as the wide receiver one. Uh, but after his rookie season, sell, sell, sell. You know, that was my advice is to get to, to sell Nikhil Harry all day long because he did not, you know, even I know he's hurt, but even when he was on the field, he wasn't doing anything. 
Uh, and that's, that's an immediate red flag. So uh, the fact that his ADP was still like wide receiver 30 uh, in dynasty startups going into last year, it made sense to, to sell him, right? Instead of buying him, instead of you know going in the opposite direction. So the thing with Sam Darnold is that he's not very expensive right now, generally speaking, and he at least is going to likely fit the bill of a change of scenery. So you can at least, you know, I'm not like totally off of Sam Darnold as a result of that. He came in young too. Like there's, there's some reasons why you can still be a little bit bullish on Darnold, but you know, it's guys, you know, who it's like, it's like the Andy Dalton, uh, you know, the, the, the QB purgatory, uh, that, that these teams sit in that it's just not really worthwhile, you know, going after those guys or thinking that they're going to have like a high ceiling. You feel pretty confident the jets are going to be drafting a quarterback. I do. I mean, I, I mean, it would make sense to at least, you know, if, if, if you're in that spot, um, you know, we talked about hit rates and stuff earlier, but hit rates are tremendously better if you're looking at like top five picks as opposed to like back half first round picks. Um, and so I think that if you're in that position, you got to just go for it. You know, I don't have, like I said, I don't have strong takes on quarterbacks in this class yet. Um, but yeah, I would, I would assume that, you know, it's a strong class in general. Um, I assume that they're, they'll probably go quarterback at two, probably fields. Nice. Let's break down a few more just real fast. I know we're getting close. Aaron Jones. Where is our boy going? Is he staying in Green Bay? Which I don't, I kind of feel like he's not, but you got any? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I I love Aaron Jones, man. I mean, he was, I I love him because my prospect model loved him and I got him everywhere. And like, I I was, I was like an OG for Aaron. Like I followed him (laughs) on Twitter really early on and he followed me back. So he's just been following me throughout his career. It's just been like a cool thing. Right. Um, so I love Aaron Jones, but I, I, I actually got a question on my mailbag episode last week about uh, AJ Dillon and what people should do with AJ Dillon. And at first I'm like, eh, it's probably, it's whatever. Like you could, you could make a case either way. But then I thought about it more and looked at his ADP and I thought you should probably buy AJ Dillon right now, which is not something I thought I was going to conclude. Um, but it was mostly the result of uh, just the upside that would exist. If, if, you know, he needs one thing to happen in order for, him to be, ca- I mean, for his ADP to rise, to, to gain value out of that asset. One thing needs to happen and it's Aaron Jones leaving. Mm-hmm. Now, I still think Green Bay is the most likely landing spot, but there are reports out now that came out today that talked about him wanting fi- or, or him fetching or not, he's not necessarily demanding, but him fetching 15 million a year, which would be insane. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just a lot of money to pay a running back. And so if that's the case, you know, you're looking at teams that have cap space that might want to take that on. You could look at like Miami or something. But the problem with Miami is that they have a pretty progressive front office. And I don't know if they're going to actually spend that way at the running back position as a result of that. Um, so that's my hesitation with Miami. There's just not a lot of like spots for guys to go to right now to just walk into this like massive, massive role, which is why I think there's a, a decent chance. Usually, running backs get their best offers from the team that they're currently on. So yeah. that's why that's why I think Jones is likely to stay. But I think if you're playing probability, it still makes sense to go after like an A.J. Dillon just in case it doesn't happen. So let me ask you this. Do you think there are 10 running backs in this class that could go in the first three rounds? No. How many do I, you think there are? Maybe. I, I would I would probably say there's only going to be like four. Four or five. five maybe, maybe Maybe six. Maybe six, maybe. So, so if you say maybe, so let's say five then. Let's say that's, five. Five, five would be fair. Yeah. That's five spots that he, he can't go to. 
Yeah, I do think I do think though that like you can make the argument like a like Kenny Gainwell will probably go. In the, let's say that he goes day two and he's going to be more of like he'll probably start out his career more as like a satellite back, right? Instead of like a a full three down guy. So as a result of that, like Aaron Jones and Kenny Gainwell together could hypothetically work, you know. Which if I don't, the, I don't, if, I don't like from a fantasy perspective. If the Packers yeah, yeah. keep him, and I, yeah, I the look of everybody right is like, Ooh. I, I, I don't want that to happen. But. I think the odds of the uh, the Packers keeping them are higher than what most people think. But it just seems to me like no matter who's coaching, they just won't unleash the beast, man. I mean, you're a big fan, so I know you've probably watched him play, um, you know, more than than a lot of players. Do you feel like there's just some curse on that kid that they won't yeah feature him yeah i, I mean, mean i think I, even I think late in this last season i was yeah. like whoa i mean the i think the first playoff game uh jamal williams got the first series well he got of, hurt aaron jones was hurt the game i'm talking about he had come back maybe it wasn't the playoff game it was like maybe it was week 15 or something i don't know he was out there and then he came out there the second series and i was like why? Why isn't he starting? I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's frustrating to me. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that also to keep in mind is that the Packers have been fairly run heavy over the last couple of years. Uh, this past yeah. year, they were they were twenty six in the league and and passed the rush ratio. So, you know, even though his market share numbers, you know, aren't as strong, you know, you give it a little bit of context. And if you're on a run heavy team and maybe not seeing as good of a backfield share, you're still seeing a decent enough amount of volume just because you're in that sort of run heavier team. I think that's their mindset, right? Is that they're, they know that they're approaching these games in positive game scripts. You know, they go back to back 13 win seasons. They're, they're facing these positive game scripts. They're going to be running the ball uh, more than a typical team. And so they're probably their, their idea in their brain is that they're uh, you know, they're just resting the guys and they're, they're keeping their legs fresh. That's my, it's my thought behind that it. Makes I mean, no, that and, makes sense. And, and, and he and gets a lot of red zone. He gets a lot of red zone work too. Yeah. And, and yeah. We, we just have to remember that they, the, the, these coaches could give a shit about our fantasy teams. Yeah. They and <laughs> I think sometimes I'm just looking at my player on the sidelines, like what the hell is going the, on? Right the one now? thing, the one thing to keep in mind too, is that you're trying to be rational with a team that drafted AJ Dillon in the second round. You're right. And, <laughs> and it's and look, I like AJ Dillon, right? I think, I, I think he's, he's the fine. third best running back on their team. He probably is. Yeah. I, I like I think he's fine. Like I don't I don't mind AJ Dillon. And like I, I thought that people were a little harsh on him uh in the at least in the analytics world in terms of evaluating him last year. But he was fine. I mean he, he was also another guy that hit the 80th percentile barely, but he made it. Um but you know, th- th- like he's fine. But uh, you know, teams that are doing that, like Seattle, does, you know, when they took Rashad Penny in the first round, you know, it- it's it's hard to to judge them rationally when they're not being rational, right? And, like objectively rational, right? Like AJ Dillon in the second round was not a good pick. Like no, I don't care. I don't care what he does throughout his career. I, I I could already foresee him having a great playoff game in Lambeau and people saying, I told you so, I told you so. But it's mm-hmm. it's that's not the point. The greater point is the position he's playing, the draft capital you're spending, and what you actually needed to do with that pick. Um, and so team needs. Yeah. I mean, it matters. And, and you, you bring up a good point with Rashad Penny. He was thought of as a, a special teams guy, yeah. for Christ's sakes. And, yeah. and, and somehow vaulted up to the end of the first round. It was like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. So um, it's just hard. It's just hard to, that's the one part too, with my models with uh, draft capital is that, 
you know, it takes one team for that draft capital to, to be out of whack. Right. And a good example of that. I really liked Andy Isabella pre I, I screwed up that draft class. So bad. It was easily my worst draft class from an evaluation standpoint. Just, it was bad, but I, uh, I liked Andy Isabella coming out. Uh, great production. I thought that he could be like a Brandon cooks type at the next level. Um, and then he gets the draft capital associated with him. But realistically, Arizona might have had a, a second round grade on Andy Isabella. Every other team might have had a fifth round grade. But yeah. into my model goes the second round pick, right? And so there, that does happen sometimes too, where we're never going to know what the real reason is. Maybe he was just bad and maybe other teams had second round picks and stuff, second round grades on him. But I'm sure plenty of times, you know, teams are just reaching on these players and it really screws up my model a little bit. BZ and I have a lot of Andy Isabella just <laughs> rotting away. Oh yeah, on yeah. our dynasty rosters because you can't drop him. I mean, eventually you can, but I haven't gotten to the point where I can drop him yet. Yeah. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, you know, you bring up guys like that. You bring you brought up Nikhil Harry earlier. Are there are there players that you look to swing trade on? Meaning, like you know what they do with you know some of these cryptos where they they sell. And then and then buy again when it dips. We talk about buying the dip, but I mean, are you constantly buying and selling the same guys and not necessarily even using using them, them on your rosters, but recognizing when there's that buy window and then recognizing, you know, when you can sell them and then buy them again later at another dip? I mean, are we constantly just like mulch just churning over the same guys sometimes? Does that yeah. make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that you have to do that. You know, I don't know of a specific specific example off the top of my head, but yeah, I think that you have to do that because the way that uh, I view Dynasty is that there's there's two avenues that we should really be looking down. One of them is player evaluation, how you feel about these guys and how you're how you're ranking them or how you just generally view them versus the rest of their position. And then the other avenue is the market, right? And it's it's when you're building a Dynasty roster. Um, and I, I did an, an, uh, a study on this that that looked at how rookies appreciate in value. Um, and so I did a podcast on it earlier this offseason. But basically, I looked at all, uh, all all rookies in terms of startup ADP. And then I looked at what happened the following year with their startup ADP, no matter how they performed. I didn't really care. I was just looking at um, you know if they were first round picks in terms of, of rookie ADP, second round picks, et cetera, et cetera. And what I found was... Uh, the vast majority, you know, you're, you're, you're gaining equity on your team uh, by drafting rookies, no matter how they perform. So if you're, if you're getting young players, if you're getting these rookie players, doesn't matter how they perform, you're, you're overall, from, a, from an overall standpoint, you will gain equity over the long run by building that way. So there's a lot of people uh, like Ryan McDowell who, who uh, started, who coined the productive struggle draft. Yes. There's a lot. So much validity. To, there's so much validity. He was on our podcast last year. We talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much validity to it because what he's basically doing is instead of looking at these, the player evaluation side and saying, I'm getting my guy who I like, what he's doing is he's building value on his team by getting players who we know will appreciate in value. And yeah. that's what the study really showed is that, yeah, you should be, you should be going after these guys. I wish I had the numbers in front of me because it was kind of, kind of insane. Uh, the differences between, uh, you know, like top 50 startup picks that were rookies or top 100 startup picks that were rookies versus non-rookies. It was like a, a 20% difference in terms of guys who appreciated in value and guys who didn't appreciate in value. No, I, that's 
Fantastic stuff. I, I, I love all of that. I mean, that's just a great way to look at your dynasty rosters um, for value wise. I, I have people DM me all the time about um, trades and startups. And, and some guys, I tell them if they haven't done it before, even though these other guys are just going bonkers and trading all these startup picks, if you haven't done it, relax because you yeah. could really screw yourself. And there was a guy, I, I can't remember what it was, but it was something to the equivalent of, you know, a sixth or a seventh rounder for a 12th and a 14th or something. And I told him, I said, there's a huge drop off, man. And I haven't done a startup this year, but I'm assuming it's going to be like it was last year and the year before that there's a, there's a drop off, you know, in the second, there's another drop off on the fifth. There's a huge drop off in the seventh and eighth round. And there's no way I'm, I'm trading back in that position. Right. A lot of people say to trade back. And if you're trading like your 110 to trade back and to get multiple good players and get a couple seconds and a couple fourths, I'm all for it. Right. But if you're trading that seventh for a, an 11th and a 14th or what, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's a good strategy. Yeah. I'm about um, when you're, when it comes to your dynasty roster, there's a time to buy picks and a time to sell picks. And right now is not a time to buy picks, startup no. picks. They're hot right now. Everybody no. wants picks. Uh, now is yeah. the time to be selling picks. Uh, if you think you have a a roster that can contend, and now is the time to add that piece that a pick could get you. And then on the other side of that, uh, midway through next season, if you've had a lot of injuries and it's just not happening for you and you can realize that, then it would be the time to start acquiring picks right. because those picks are only going to increase in value. Just like those players that you were talking about, you want to yeah. acquire players who are going to increase in value. Those picks do the same thing. They just get more and more valuable as we get closer to these drafts. People get these fevers for these rookies. Um, and I, I love it, man. I, I love to acquire those picks and sell them. Yeah, I, I, we've talked about this multiple times. I do this all the time. I also like to use, you know, I kind of go ahead a little bit and start to throw in picks from the following year's draft, the yeah, 22 draft. So that way when we come into the 21 draft, not only do you have your 21 picks to use as ammo to make moves, but a lot of people will be willing to take those 22 picks as well. And it's helped me be able to move up in all over the board, especially – if I if I believe in a player like you know we had Justin Jefferson, um, you know your T Higgins like guys like this that were you wanted to get in the second round but you didn't have the capital to move but you did have a 22 first or a second that you could throw in that might just swing him enough just to get you in there, get your stud guy, move on, worry about the picks next year. Well, cool, man. Um, we're 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 pushing an hour and fifteen. I know you don't usually go this long, JJ. Um, uh, we this is par for the course from us, but we're we're gonna let you go, man. We're gonna get on out of here. Um, buy Jimmy. You heard it from JJ. Buy Jameer Jefferson. Buy Carson Wentz. Buy the late round quarterback. Yes. Sir. Um, JJ, is there anything you wanna you wanna plug now? Um, anything you're doing? You want the listeners to know about? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I have the late round podcast, which is sort of uh, my baby in the space now. Um, I always say uh, it's the thing that I work the most on for sure. So uh, definitely check it out. The late round podcast. Always JJ, we're, we're, we're very happy you decided to uh, to spend some time with us tonight. Of course. Um, we I know I greatly enjoyed it. I know the guys did. Um, and you guys out there in listener land, remember that the best fantasy discussions remain unscripted. unscripted.